The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was, it was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we've found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You will see greater things than that. He then added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open up and angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. So full disclosure, we will not get to the whole bit about Nathaniel at the end. Otherwise, on this first Sunday, we would be here for 45 minutes rather than the 30-ish minutes that I'm really going to strive to be under. Um, but just a quick little note. Um, this is not in my notes. Jessica, please forgive me. Um, at the end, are those God goggles that Jesus is talking about? Did he look through some sort of cosmic divine prism and see Nathaniel? Um, my guess is that there's something more going on there about a rabbi talking to a student, namely a disciple. And if you want to know more about that, um, you can email me and I'll share some notes. So there we have it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the sermon starts. <laughs> oh, well, again, my name's Kyle and I, I get to uh, participate in the leadership of this church. I, I get to most weeks come and teach uh, and it is a great joy. And you know, it's curious is this whole thing started because in between my sophomore and junior year of college, I was sitting at a cafeteria lunch table and somebody asked me and I quote, do you want to do this Jesus thing? Laid before us was a, a track, uh, there was a bridge, and a diagram. I think you know where that, that's going. And so I gave my response. It was, yes, I do want to do this Jesus thing, but I wasn't really sure what that meant. Uh, a week after that, I was plugged into a local church, so I'm at like a mega church down the street from my college. A week after that, I am then 
plugged into a Bible study, and then I start doing this crazy thing, reading the Bible. Now, what I didn't know, and maybe you're still unaware of this or you do know this, uh, is that the Bible itself is a whole thing. It is a, a collection of, you can think of the Bible like a library of ancient meditation literature that's designed to be studied in communities of faith over the course of a lifetime, but I like came to say yes to this Jesus thing, was handed a Bible, and then started reading it like a novel. And you know what happens when you do that, right on page one, it gets kind of weird. Because you turn the page and you have a talking snake. You turn the page again, you have violence and murder. And somehow this collection of stories and li like this library is supposed to lead to and find its fulfillment in Jesus of Nazareth. And I'm like a few weeks in and all these questions are bubbling up. Questions that didn't quite go over well at my Bible study. And they didn't really fit the context of a megachurch on a Sunday. You know what I'm saying? So what, what was I to do with this new zeal, in some sense, for Jesus, who is more compelling than ever, uh, but what was I to do with this? I mean, I, it just begs this question, what did it mean for me to say yes to the Jesus thing? In some traditions, that would mean I was converted, that the hard work was over, I was now a Christian, I was in, like that was the thing, there I was. But another question comes on the back end of that, like is a single moment, a single moment at a cafeteria lunch table, is that the true story of my life in Christ? And I think we could all like sit here and go, well, no, there's probably a lot more. Now you're like doing this thing. So clearly there's something more that happened, but so often it's easy to think and then tell our stories in such a way that that is the moment that my life with Jesus happened. And that was the moment that mattered, that that was the Jesus stuff. But what if the horizon of our life in Christ is broader than we could ever imagine, but there's obstacles standing in the way? See, what, what if the scope of our life with Jesus is even bigger than adopting the term Christian. And if that makes you a little nervous, that was intentional, but I just want you to stay with me here because we're, this is, think about the scene that's unfolding in our teaching text. You have John's disciples, they hear their rabbi, John the Baptist, announcing again that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lamb of God. This, if you remember, is the one who takes away the sins of the world, and that is this potent imagery drawn from the story of the people of Israel. This is their foundation story. It's the story of the Exodus. It's the story of deliverance from the hands of oppression, and John draws on that image and says, the one who would give himself so that we might live, it's Jesus. There he is. John's disciples hear this, and in response, they turn away from John to follow Jesus. And when they come to Jesus, they come with this simple question like, where are you staying? And Jesus responds in what seems like a simple answer, but there's some substance there that we're going to unpack. He says, come and see. Come and see. So uh, let's just ask this question again. What did it mean for them to receive Jesus' invitation? What did it mean for them to say yes to this Jesus thing? Is that the moment that John's disciples were converted? Like, are they Christians now? I just want us to linger here because you might be surprised to hear that Jesus never used the term Christian. And what's more, the New Testament never defines the term Christian or records anyone, quote unquote, becoming a Christian. The only time the term does show up in the New Testament is when these, uh, the, the church itself is becoming so ethnically diverse you can no longer call it an offshoot of Judaism. 
It's no longer this strange sect of Judaism. It's something new because there's Jew and Gentile coming together in the name of Jesus. What is this? Well, this is when the term Christian comes, and it's not an endearing term. It's actually, in the ancient Near East, like throwing shade. It's, it's, it's a term, oh, you little Christs. To my mind, and I, I could be wrong about this, but Jesus' ambition was not to create Christians. Instead, this scene and this story, and perhaps our story as well, is all about discipleship, discipleship to Jesus. And to be clear, I'm not suspicious of the term Christian. I, I use the word, I like the word, as people are increasingly like allergic to the word, I'm more attracted to it, and yet there's something that we need to parse out here. Something we need to get our minds around, and it's this question, what is the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? And this might seem like a, like a semantic dance, like we're just dancing around words here, but I hope to, to like walk us through is that there actually is some significance to defining these terms, because according to the late philosopher Dallas Willard, one of the greatest threats to Christianity in the modern age is that you could become a Christian without becoming a disciple. You could claim to be a Christian without discipling to the way of Jesus. And what's curious about this word disciple, and we'll get more into it, is that of the 261 times that this disciple or mathetes shows up in the New Testament, uh, very seldom does it occur as a verb, as though like you're discipling someone. It rather is a noun. It is something in someone you are. You are a disciple. Discipleship as an idea precedes Jesus and his ilk, other rabbi. It actually starts with Aristotle, and, and it, like, they have people who are apprenticing to their lifestyle. So what's the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? Well, let's just linger here again. Hypothetically, let's just say a coworker comes up and they ask you, because of the kindness of your heart toward them, you know, they ask you, what, what's your deal? Are you like a Christian or something? And because uh, you have like stored up God's word in your heart and you know that if you, like, if you are the type of person who acknowledges Jesus before others, that Jesus will acknowledge you before the Father, so you say, yes, I am a Christian. Maybe you don't say it like that. It might, maybe it's a little sheepish. I don't know your personality. But they, they lean in. They say, okay, so Christian, um, what does that mean? What's the response? Have a moment. Let that scene play out with your coworkers, the one that you like the least. You've been kind to them because enemy love, you know, Sermon on the Mount. And they ask you, what does that, what does that mean? What's your response? Maybe you have some statements stored up that would be something like this. Well, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. Or I belong to a community of faith called the church. Uh, or maybe something more elaborate, like Jesus set me free from my sin. He, he's like conquered sin, Satan, and death. And now because Jesus has done that, like I trust that. In essence, we're asked what it means to be a Christian. And most likely, we present doctrine. Now, I, I, like, I went to school for this stuff. I, wrote, I, like, I, I would go back to school for this stuff. I'm not here to disparage doctrine. I'm just, it's curious to me that we we're asked, what does it mean to be a Christian? And we put forward doctrine, a list of propositions about Jesus or a moral ethical framework, statements of our, the eternal state of our soul. And moral and ethics aren't like 
morality, ethics, those are not bad. It's something that we actually carry as a gift to be given away. But are they core? Like, are propositions about Jesus worth giving your life to? Rearranging your mental and emotional, even the physical furniture of your life to point it all at Jesus. And I just don't know if propositions about Jesus being the Son of God are substantive enough to hold the weight of your life. So what is the difference between being a Christian and being a disciple? Again, your boy Dallas Willard offers up this definition. A disciple or apprentice is simply someone who has decided to be with another person under appropriate conditions, and hear this, in order to become capable of doing what that person does or become what that person is. Just sit with that. This is not an explicitly religious statement. I imagine that none of your coworkers are talking about discipleship, but they are all in the process of discipleship to something. This is not an explicitly religious statement. It is about being with someone to be like them and become like them and do what they do. In these terms, everyone is a disciple. That is, we are all learning to live from someone else. When we're young, that happened through modeling or mimicking. Last week, we're walking out from our uh, little fifth Sunday gathering where we pray together, we share a meal, we feast like kings and queens in the kingdom, potluck style, and uh, we're walking out and Karen turns to me and she says, Griffin, my, my eldest son, he, might, he looks like Jessica, but in mannerism and speech, he is your boy. Now that both warmed my heart and scared the crap out of me because um, there's some stuff in here that unless it's transformed, it will be transmitted. It will make its way through my life into his because we are the type of creatures who must learn and continue to learn how to live. See, what's in me is going to end up in him. It's gonna end up in Sai, in some shape or form. And apparently with Griffin, it's already begun. And I know it's been a minute, but we've actually done some teaching on this. It's called the Emotionally Healthy Church. It's a whole series. You can go back and binge that thing if you want. Uh, but let me just sum up like, some substance in a phrase borrowed from Pete Scazzaro, who's the author of that work, and it is this. Jesus may be in your heart, but Grandpa is in your bones. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, like things are clicking into place. You're like that's why I do the things that I do that annoy my, there you go. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. See how we act and react in the world. It is woven into the fabric of our lives beginning in our family of origin. And Finn may not have come into the world with my mannerisms, but they have been formed in his life passively and actively. And all of us, for good and for ill, we carry bits and pieces of our family's story in our lives and in our bodies. We don't feel them as abstractions. Often they take root in how we live. They give shape to the life we live. And as we age, this shifts because that's just the beginning our family of origin is. As we age, our, our teachers and coaches and increasingly our peers build on this familial foundation to teach us how to live in the world. And increasingly, formation happens less in physical spaces with peers and teachers and maybe parents, uh, but instead it, it, it's with influencers from afar. They woo us to all the things we could point our life at. This is what sociologists would call choice anxiety. 
You've experienced this. You've gone to the store to get hot sauce. I was at Gateway Market to get other things, and I noticed the hot sauce because I'm a fiend, and I was like looking, and I'm like, oh, I just want the Bluebird because it's the best. But then I noticed, uh, if you don't know what Bluebird hot sauce is, just uh, you're welcome. Find it. Enjoy it. Uh, the Serrano is my fave. But all of a sudden, there's, there's, I kid you not, 30 other things at this and this is just, this is not at a supermarket, this is just at a market. So you go to a supermarket, now there's 80 different things. And what's, what's happening there? These are all the things I could have. They're all there saying, come on. And this isn't really a novel concept, but influence, it is um, fresh language. Influencers, they tell us their account of the good life and then invite us to take up their way to get there. And you could point your life at fitness or beauty or business or parenting, which the algorithm knows of my life. You could point your life at plants. Do you know there are Instagram influencers who tell you what the best fiddle leaf fig is going to be? And apparently the measure of your life is like how good your fiddle game is. Most of us need to step it up. I don't even have one, and now I'm like, you go through it once, you're like, well, apparently I need that. I digress. You can point your life at any of these things, and probably a combination of all those things, to get the good life that you deserve. And in a digital age, influencers, their forming potential is greater than we could ever imagine. Because we like willfully give our attention to it. And if this all sounds a little lofty, let me just put it another way. Let me give you a number. If you're like the adjust the facts kind of gal or guy, here you go. 2,617. That's the number of times the average smartphone user taps, swipes, or reaches for their phone in a day. 2,617. Stay with me here because we're about to do a little math. I'm not good at math, so correct me if you need. There are 1,440 minutes in a day. On average, we're awake for about a thousand-ish of those minutes. You smush that stuff together, that means approximately every 30 seconds we are reaching for, swiping, tapping, liking something on our phone. Now, think about how intimate and how vulnerable that is. Often, the last thing that we look at before we go to bed and the first thing that we look at in the morning is what? It's our phones. And I don't, I don't share this bit of data to like elicit shame or condemnation. I hope it's sobering, but it's not to condemn. I share this little bit of data to make a single point. If you do anything 2,617 times in a day, it will shape you. And because we willfully participate, we willfully participate in this thing. It has the power to shape the things beneath the surface. Our desires, our longings, our appetites, they are shaped in the digital landscape. In other words, you and me, we are all becoming someone. And Willard would have us to ask, who are we becoming? You've probably heard me say that, I will say it again, but here, let's hear from Willard again in The Divine Conspiracy. It is one of the major transitions of life to recognize who has taught us. And I'm not just talking about your teachers from your youth, literally, who is teaching you now? Or as, as Willard put it, who has mastered us? And then evaluate the results of their teaching. This is a harrowing task, and sometimes we just can't face it. But it can also open the door to choose another or other masters and possibly better masters and one master above all. 
Like you probably didn't wake up this morning and expect to count the costs of digital me like, or social media on your soul. And, and again, this doesn't come with shame in my voice. Like, he hear this. I just want us to like sit with this question. Are you becoming the type of person that you want to age into? When you think of yourself in 10, 20, 30, 40, God willing, 50 years down the line, are you becoming the type of person you want to be? I'm not vilifying Netflix. I'm not saying get off of Instagram or your news apps. I'm just asking you to assess the fruit of their teaching, of their influence, or maybe you might want to put it their discipleship in your life. Like, are you becoming kind and patient are you becoming, I don't know, bold and compassionate or loyal and wise? How is contentedness going? What about forgiveness? Like, are those things that are welling up in you because of the people you follow or the inputs that are streaming into your life, are you becoming the kind of person you want to age into? Discipleship asks this type of question. Because discipleship forms us into particular people. So let's just come back to Jesus. What's going on in our teaching text? Like when John's disciples hear that Jesus, not John, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, like what is going on there? They just choose to dip and follow Jesus. That's a little weird. So just give me a few-ish minutes to nerd out on discipleship in the ancient Near East. You ready? Do you need to like stretch or stand up? If you need to, more coffee maybe? Um, here we go. In Jesus' day, the education of children was central. It was central to the community. Why? It was central because corporate identity in Israel extended beyond national ties, national virtues, and national values. Corporate identity was core to the people of Israel because if they lost their corporate identity, they lost everything. And so what would happen? Well they would retell the story over and over again. They would tell the story of how the Lamb of God actually stood in the place that, that God delivered them from bondage and slavery in Egypt and that God continues to be faithful. God is the ever-stooping God who comes low to lift them up. That is the story of Yahweh with the people of Israel. And how do they get that in? Well, they get it in young. The historian Josephus, he says this, that above all, we pride ourselves in the education of our children. And what that meant practically is that around the age of six, who here is six years old? Anybody? Who's above the age of six but below the age of 10? Okay, so here's, here's where this goes down. Do you, do you see your peers? Okay, so around the age of six, boys and girls would go off to their local synagogue and they would go to something called Beit Sefer or the house of the book. And then they, over the course of four years, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. They would store up in their heart Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. You're like, I'm still working on my memory verse for my, like, that's my new year, that's the thing. No, it's like the whole thing would be stored up in their heart. And if you were a talented student after that, you would go on, or maybe if you were wealthy, you would go on to this thing called Beit Talmud or the House of Learning. And it's there that you would move beyond the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and you would start to take in the prophetic tradition and the other writings, like the Psalms. You would begin to learn this uh, dance back and forth with the rabbi, the questions. You remember when you encounter Jesus and Luke when he's a young man, and he's, he's like in the temple courts, and what's he doing? He's questioning them. He's going back and forth. He's probably learning the dance in Beit Talmud. This is the way that people would be formed. 
Now, at the end of Beit Talmud, after another three-ish years, you're 13, 14, and if you're a girl, you're at a marrying age, and so you would likely be given in marriage. Uh, if you were a boy, then you, and you really were the best of the best, you would go and seek out an interview with a rabbi. This would be known as a Beit Midrash, or you would go and you would go to apprentice to a rabbi to become their Talmud or their disciple. And what that would mean is you would go and you would seek out an interview with them. But to see if you really were the best of the best, they would begin to like interview you. Think Ivy League status interview. I've never experienced one of these, but apparently they're quite challenging. And so they grill you, but it's not just for general admission because rabbis have what's called a yoke. And just say that with me. Yoke. <laughs> a yoke is the teaching that a rabbi would carry. It would be their sum of their teaching, their interpretation of the law. And so they would want to know, does this, like, does this pupil, does this Talmud, do they have what it takes to carry my yoke? And if they found that indeed you loved the Lord, you loved Yahweh, you, you loved the Torah, but you just didn't have what it, taked, like what it took to carry their yoke, they would dismiss you and they would say something like, go home and ply your trade, go learn the family business, and you would be dismissed. But if you did had, if you like had the chops to carry their yoke, then they would say something like this, come and follow me. Do you hear it? Come on now. To say it succinctly, discipleship was, and I think still is, about withness and witness. Withness, proximity to your rabbi, being with them, and witness that is bearing witness about their yoke. Withness and witness. And it might seem odd to us that John's disciples left John to go and seek out Jesus, unless we recall that the whole story of John could pretty much be summed up, not the whole thing, but you could say a good summation of John's life could be said in this statement, I am not the Messiah. In fact, all of the identities that John put off, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet, I'm not the Messiah, all of a sudden in Jesus, this cascade of significance falls into Jesus's life that he is clearly becoming the one in whom the hope rests. John says, I am not, but he continues to boast about Jesus and his disciples hear him again say, there is the Lamb of God. What if John opened the door to choose a better rabbi, a different teacher, a better master, a different influencer, and they simply walked through the door that John had opened? I think that's likely the case. When I imagine myself in this scene standing there, which is a really fun way to read the Gospels, use your imagination, go figure, as I'm standing there, and it's like these two guys, they hear John say this, and they turn with a little reluctance, but they turn to follow Jesus because they're like, okay, John is saying he's the one, I'm not the one, so maybe... Maybe we will like go and follow Jesus. And it's like John, this is what I picture. John is standing there looking at his other disciples. You gonna do it? You, got, you good? Okay. I, that's just, I, that's like, uh, I have no idea if that's true. That's not in the text, I'm just curious. Like, is he standing there hopeful that they all go and follow Jesus? See, many of us, we came to Jesus because he was the one who could, like, make us good. 
or he was the one that could save us from the hell of our life. Or we were told you will go to hell based on the life you live. And so we're like, well, I don't want to do that. Well, what's the other option? Become a Christian. Okay. Like, and I know that's not true for all of us, but I know it's true for some of us. We came to Jesus for those reasons, and, and while those might be a byproduct of coming to Jesus, it is not the essence of discipleship to Jesus. So what is it that makes Jesus worth following? Like, that's the question. What is it that makes Jesus worth following? Not just at a moment at a cafeteria lunch table, but with the whole of your life for the rest of your life. Like, what does Jesus possess? What is he good at that we want? What is it that compelled John's disciples to turn from their rabbi and seek Jesus? I don't know if this is the answer, but it's my response. That Jesus was good at embodying the kingdom of God. And if you're a little fuzzy on your kingdom theology, here it is in shorthand. The kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. In other words, the kingdom of God is where what God wants done is done all the time. Jesus embodied the range of God's effective will. That is, in Jesus' life and ministry, the will of the Father was always done through his life. Jesus will go on to say, I do nothing apart from the Father. Jesus embodied the kingdom of God. And he did it with all the wrong people. All the social outcasts, those who are on the margins, the ones, they loved Jesus. They partied with Jesus. They were with him eating meals. They received his invitation to come and follow him. Later on in the New Testament, when the magnetism of Jesus has like broken beyond ethnic barriers, or it's really just first starting, uh, because Jesus has been like shown to be the resurrected king of the cosmos, and it's like, oh my gosh, there's, there's like power in the name of Jesus, and not just Jews, but Gentiles are coming. Peter, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, he goes on to say this in Acts chapter 10 when he's preaching to the house of Cornelius. This is who he des- described, this is the description of Jesus. So listen up to this. God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. He went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. That's the Jesus thing. To follow Jesus meant at least working out your salvation with Jesus, learning to keep in step with the Spirit, to do good and to heal people under the power of the devil because God would be with you. That is the Jesus stuff. This, my friends, is a world away from claiming the title Christian. I had no idea that stuff was on the table when I said yes to the Jesus thing. But sometimes you just can't unsee something. And this is what this text has brought us to is what makes Jesus worth following? Well, he's the one who full of the spirit does good and like is healing people who are under the power of the devil. To be a disciple, like what is the difference between a Christian and a disciple? A disciple makes a claim about Jesus 
with eternal consequences, but a disciple allows those eternal consequences to come to bear on their soul and move them to be with Jesus, to become like him. And in the words of uh, the author John Mark Comer, it is about taking up the lifestyle of Jesus. It's not just claiming Jesus' life, but taking up his lifestyle full of the Spirit, doing good, and then the weird and awkward stuff for us in 2023, healing all of those who are under the weight of oppression. This is what made Jesus worth following then, and I would say what makes him worth following now. And maybe you're thinking, like, what the, what? I'm not sure that I'm qualified for, the, like, that stuff. I'm down with affirming the eternal glory bit, I, uh, eternal security, okay. I've done that for a while, but the, like, lifestyle of Jesus well, stay tuned because uh, as we close, we'll find that we're actually in good company. If you want to jump down to verse 43 or just follow here with me, this is what we encounter. Jesus decides to leave for Galilee and he finds Philip. And what does Jesus say to Philip? One more time with a little more. Huh. Yeah. I imagine that's exactly what he sounded like. So there's Jesus. And just stop right here. Do, do, you, do you notice anything? There's no formal request from Philip. There's no resume to put forward. There's no questioning. It is just invitation from Jesus. And folks, it gets better. Check out the next verse. This is verse 44. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethesda. Are you not enraptured with the new... Come let me tell you why this is worth getting excited about. John assumes that we know the backstory. John's gospel has come down a little bit later in the line. So there's other gospels, stories, biographies about the life and ministry of Jesus that are in circulation. He assumes that we know the backstory. He assumes that we know that this town of Bethesda, that it is Bethsaida, excuse me, was a fishing village of about 600 people. What's a small town in Iowa? 50 size? Okay, like what's the name of the small towns in Iowa? Mitchellville. Yes, okay. I, I, I looked up uh, on like the census in Madrid, Madrid. Yeah, apparently that's how you say it. So in Madrid, that's what I came to mind. So think of a small town, Mitchellville, Madrid, I don't know, some place of 50. Uh, you, you blink and you pass it. Philip is from that place. Philip is from Madrid. It's likely that Philip, like Andrew and Peter, and the, and the sons of Zebedee, that he was a fisherman. Because at the end of John's gospel, in John 21, we see that Philip is out plying the trade with Peter on the water. That is why John is sharing that he is from Bethsaida. Why does this matter? Well, let me ask, if you're out fishing, what does that mean in the educational framework of those people? Let me just ask this a little bit more simply. If you're fishing, are you following a rabbi? No. If you were out fishing, it meant that no rabbi thought you were good enough to follow them. No rabbi thought you had what it would take to take up their yoke. But what does Jesus say to Philip? Follow me. 
He looks at the life of this man who others had rejected, and he says without hesitation, follow me. Jesus saw in Philip someone who could be like him, who could carry his yoke, a yoke Jesus describes elsewhere as easy and light, a yoke that will give rest to your soul. And to be sure, a yoke is a work instrument, but it is not one that will leave you burned out. It will actually ignite a fire within you. It will turn your life into a light in the dark places. That is the type of work that Jesus is going to give to those who would be willing to be with him and become like him. Or as Peter went on to say in Acts 10, it will release goodness through you and healing for the oppressed. Amen. Fast forward in Philip's life. Now we're leaving the text and going into church tradition. And tradition has it that Philip ended up in a massive Greek city called Heropolis. Heropolis was a, a central city for Roman soldiers. And what that meant in the ancient Near East was that Heropolis was a bit of a wild town. So the industry of that town was geared toward gambling and bathhouses. Bathhouses are not like a spa. Those would be essentially places of um, any type of sexual practice you could imagine. And so there in Heropolis, Philip goes. Think Las Vegas. And there are protocols in this Las Vegas of the ancient Near East in Heropolis. To enter the city, you had to go through the Domitian Gate. Domitian was the emperor of the day, and Domitian was he was keeping up with who was offering worship to him. To go through the gate, you would light incense. You would have a stain on your hand to trade in the day. By the way, that stain was called by early Christians the mark of the beast. Interesting. Uh, and so to trade, you would have this stain. It would say, I'm, I'm loyal to the empire. Philip, according to tradition, would go to the gate. He would stand there and he'd walk around it. Did we all just hear the same thing? Philip would go to the gate. He would stand there, and tradition has it that he would, to his daughters, say, my rabbi fed the thousands. We can do this. And he would walk around it. In defiance of the empire, Philip went to that place because Philip was caught up in, a, in like the vision of a God life, not like the influence of a good life according to the Roman Empire. And Philip's witness there, his witness with Jesus, formed him into the type of people who could, the type of person who could bear witness to the life of Jesus, and it turned that Las Vegas into a center for the way of Jesus. This is the forming power of a life devoted to Jesus. And so the question that comes to us is like, how did this nobody from nowhere turn a city like Las Vegas on its head? Well, we can't be sure. But I wonder if these words from Jesus were lingering in his head, stored up in his heart. Later in John's gospel, Jesus says this to his disciples, to his church. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. You did not choose me, but I chose you. I don't think this is Jesus making a claim about Calvinism. 
This is a rabbi preparing his disciples for his death by affirming that you, yes, you are the type of person who can carry my yoke. You can do good works in the power of the Spirit. You can release healing in my name. Yes, you. And I don't think this is like Jesus, the cheerleader of your soul. I think he's saying you can become the type of person who would even be willing to give away your life for the good of others. You know, every time that Philip would walk around the gate, it ended up being an offense to the empire, an offense that would eventually land him to be crucified outside the Domitian gate, having watched his daughters and wife be crucified in front of him. That is the type of life that has spilled out of Jesus into the heart of that disciple. And Jesus' invitation is not bound to first century Israel, Palestine folks. Jesus stands before us today saying, come, any of you, come and follow me. What's clear is that this will not capture all of our imaginations, at least right now. I, uh, clear expectations. What I would love is like, Holy Spirit, would you come and fill our hearts and minds, like fill us with the love of the Father so that we would say there is nothing in this world. I will throw off whatever masters I've allowed in because Jesus, you are the master of all. Let me come and lay my life before you. I don't imagine that will happen. Probably because I've allowed realism to trample my soul a little bit. But so here's what I'm going to start saying: Is come, Holy Spirit. Like, let, why not? Why not this church? Why not the obscurity of a church meeting in a co-working space that the Spirit would come join in our yes to Jesus and light up something in our hearts? Like, where is your Heropolis? Do you ever think about that? Maybe it's just at the logistical place that you work. Maybe it's a school that your kids go to. Maybe it's like your neighbor next door. I don't know what that is, but I imagine that is a question worth answering because Jesus' invitation is not bound to a book. It is present to us today, and perhaps today is the day that we lay aside all those who seek to master us for their own good and throw off their yoke to take up Jesus's because it is here to give rest to our souls.